I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I just want to say a few quick words about... First Love by Gwendolyn, before Gwendolyn is then going to read us a little passage, and then the rest will ensue. So um, First Love is a story told from the perspective of a woman, a writer, who is in a kind of fraught um, and often very painful relationship with a husband who is plagued by illness and pain. And one of the things I found really interesting and kind of remarkable about the book was that it has a sort of scalpel-like quality to it. Um, there's a kind of sharpness and sometimes a kind of harshness to the writing that I found very, very pleasing. And interesting because it involves a kind of skewering of a lot of the narratives that people tell about themselves, but without being kind of cruel or vicious, even though there is a lot of cruelty and viciousness in the book. And I think that's because Gwendolyn's created a narrator who is as kind of puzzled and intrigued by herself as she is by the people she's in this, these complicated relationships too. So that's just my very quick intro as to why I found it so satisfying and kind of unsettling a read. So Gwendolyn, if you're happy to read a little bit from the book. Yeah, I'm just going to read the first chapter, in fact. So it's about four minutes long, so you don't have to feel like it's never going to end. Um, and, yeah, so this is Neve, the narrator, telling, um, setting, you know, setting out where she is. The rest of the book is her working out how she got there and what she thinks about it, but this is where she is. I used to look at houses like this one from the train. Behind the ivy-covered embankment, their London brick sash windows. That was on the Euston approach. The back of this flat, that is, the bedroom, the bathroom, and Edwin's study, looks out on the overground line, just past West Brompton. I've been here for about 18 months, but my boxes only recently came out of storage. Also in the consignment was my metal document case, half full of old papers, correspondence, a few photographs. I spent a long afternoon unpacking onto the new alcove shelves, deciding what to keep. When I first moved in, and before that, when I came to visit, I think I came three times, I'd watch for Edwin in the evenings, standing between the windows, eyeing the shadows out here, out there. This is a short, curved terrace. Mullions and porch columns rib the way. The traffic might build at night, but the pavements are never busy. The procession was thin down from Earl's Court. 
until at last there he'd be, blonde hair poking from a black flat cap, grey overcoat flapping, his tatty rucksack on one shoulder. In his free hand, he always held a bottle by the neck, wrapped tightly in its striped plastic bag. Lately, it's the round of coughing in the hallway that, hallway that lets me know he's home. I go out and meet him, we have a cuddle, and then I look at the standard while he gets changed. We don't talk much in the evenings, but we're very affectionate. When we cuddle on the landing, and later in the kitchen, I make little noises, little comfort noises, at the back of my throat, as does he. When we cuddle in bed at night, he says, I love you so much, or you're such a lovely little person. There are pet names, too. I'm Little Smelly Puss before a bath and Little Cleany Puss in, a, in my towel on the landing after one. In my dungarees, I'm You Little Herbert. And when I first wake up and breathe on him, I'm his little compost heap or little cabbage. Edwin kisses me repeatingly and with great emphasis in the morning. There have been other names, of course. Just so you know, he told me last year, I have no plans to spend my life with a shrew. Just so you know that. A fishwife shrew with a face like a fucking asshole that's had green acid shoved up it. You can always just get out if you find me so contemptible, he went on, feet apart, fists clenched, glaring at me over on the settee. You have to get behind the project, Neve, or get out. What? Get behind the project or get out. What's the project? The project is not winding me up. The project is not trying to get in my head and make me feel like shit all of the time. He shouted this on his way to the bedroom. Twenty minutes later, hot-cheeked, I watched the time on the cooker clock. He came back. I don't suppose it would occur to you that I'm miserable, he said, glumly but scornfully. But of course, he went on, I accept. You've got a much more informed world view than I have. You've got a much deeper world view from collecting people's glasses. You've got a much wider knowledge of the world from being on the dole in the north, of course. There was a lot of shouting from him back then, long nights when his agitation, his flinches and side glances, would coalesce into a stronger force. Might you say we were coming to an accommodation, two people who'd always expected, planned, to live their lives alone? I'd never lived with anyone before. I had no idea what it might bring out in me. Certainly I remember feeling that it was his dream world, his symbol world, that we were dragged into during those first arguments. And it frightened me, being given, as I saw it, the part of a training dummy, outfitted in colours, slogans that I could not see. Edwin's tall, over six feet, and these rooms do sometimes look too small for him. When we were rowing, especially, he'd often hunch himself up, round his shoulders, lower his head. Pacing, then pausing, as if in a spotlight, he'd soliloquise, restating his credo, which was, is, it's freedom that counts. He'd go on to wonder, haltingly, amazedly, at how he'd boxed himself in, ending up with me in his life, he meant. And when he did address me, it was abstractly, with strange conjectures, ruminations, about what I thought, who I was. I know you hate anyone who didn't grow up on benefits, he'd say. And if I objected, he took no notice, or didn't notice. He only continued talking over me with mounting scorn. I know you loathe anyone who didn't grow up in filth on benefits. I used to leave my body in a way while this went on. It was so incessant, his phrases so concatenated. There was no way in. These were thick curtain walls. Edwin has said since that he feels it's me trying to annihilate him. Strange business, isn't it? 
The difference between us, which I did try to keep in mind, was that he really did feel himself under threat back then. He'd had serious heart trouble, an operation. He'd had to lose a lot of weight, stop smoking. Things had settled down by the time we met, but he told me he couldn't feel safe, not ever again. He was also starting to suffer terribly with his joints. Fibromyalgia, as we later found out. I'm paying for something, he'd snarl, cornered. Or sometimes he'd just sit and, stop, sit and sob and look at me with frightened eyes when I sat next to him. Edwin grew up near Isleworth, an only child. He showed me the house once, the green he used to play on. We walk up that way most Saturdays, unless it's raining, taking the river path, crossing over at Putney. We hold hands, stop to feed the cruising ducks and coots, admire the doughtier dogs we see. I like hearing about Edwin when he was small. He was a worried little boy, he tells me, when he was three and four, scared to leave his mother. But then he did used to race to wave at the trains that passed his garden. I was rushing towards life, he says. Later, there was the nature club he founded at school, to which he would admit helpers, but no other members. Well, how could he trust them? One early romantic error stays with me, too. How he gave half an Easter egg each to the two girls in his class who liked him, terrified of alienating either one by preferring the other. No, they didn't think much of that, he told me, earnestly, eagerly. I went from two girls to no girls. My parents' old flat was in Chiswick. I've looked it up, nudging the touchpad to your around Spencer Road, to light on Gunya Court, which proved to be a small block set between two more robust-looking, beast-coloured villas. I could picture the living room, having seen a photograph, but nothing else came back. Sundays have always been for work. I take the settee. Edwin brings his papers down from his study. With the last of a glass of wine, and always a bunched-up tissue or two, in his office they call him the Kleenex Kid, he says. He sits bracketed to the dining table. Also before him is the church candle we light while we eat, and the tin the matchbox is kept in, labelled allumette. Sometimes the curled fingers of his right hand lift, like piano hammers, I suppose. Thanks. So in that first chapter, we can already see what is a dynamic that recurs throughout the book, I think, which is this kind of lurching between a tenderness between Neve and Edwin on the one hand, and then these moments of kind of vicious um, cruelty where he embarks on a kind of accusatory rant towards her. And one of the things I found interesting about the book was the possibility that um, love is always inevitably a kind of uh, fog of misunderstanding and uh, transference and projection. So Edwin is often kind of hurling these kind of insults at Neve, calling her a fishwife or a shrew, and invoking this idea of some kind of role that he seems preoccupied by in terms of, can you still hear me? In terms of, in terms of some kind of you know fictional idea of a wife who is haranguing and unfair and bitter and resentful, and he kind of hurls this image of this wife at Neve. And I feel that from the reader's perspective, throughout the book, it seemed clear to me that um, this is a this is an unhappy projection on his part. This is um, an unfair 
accusation and that we see him struggling with his own uh, anxieties about his illness, his own kind of defenses against his own vulnerability. Um, and in doing so, is kind of throwing it back at Neve in this very, very cruel way. But what happened to me throughout the book, or to, sort of towards the end of the book, and I'm curious to hear about whether this is something you were sort of consciously trying to evoke in the reader or not, was I myself had this kind of lurching fear that perhaps some of Edwin's accusations to Neve might also be right. Mm -hmm. So in the sense that he accuses her of projecting the figure of her brutal, miserable, cruel father onto him. And while we see this you know, very vivid picture of Edwin as kind of buffeted about by his own moods and cruelty towards her, I did have this horrifying question in the back of my mind of how, how right is his own kind of unhappy, cruel mm -hmm. verdict on her. Yes, good. Thank goodness. I'm glad. Because, like, the, the one thing. Oh, the one. The one thing I didn't want was. Am I still audible? The one thing I didn't want was for it to be plucky little Neve versus the bad men, um, and I hope that's that's slightly what happens at the end. Vis-a-vis um, -vis the tenderness, I remember being about 13 and going to see Look Back in Anger in Manchester with Michael Sheen playing Jimmy Porter, and I was appalled at that age to see them playing at being squirrels. And now, as the world gets crueler, I'm just all for finding someone to play squirrels with. Um, so I'm, I, I think that's, that's a nice element bet between this couple. And um, yeah, of course, it's all in the first person. It's all Neve's point of view. And I'm on my fifth novel now at the first point of view. And I've, like Donald Trump, I've kept promise, promising to pivot, and I haven't. Um, so. Part of that perhaps was a, a sense of, I, I'm, in, I'm in blood so far stepped, returning were as tedious as go so I thought one more novel in the first person. Okay, um, and in this one I think there is, it's a reckoning, it's a kind of nemesis in a way. Um, so, so some of his accusations of course are, are true. We don't, we don't, um, you talk about fog, she, Neve, this character in the book often you know, claims not to remember things that have happened, or you know, we're not quite sure how much she's really been burrowing, burrowing her way into the life of this man who may not really want her there, and has probably stated that quite clearly. Um, uh, yeah, so she ends up, both of them in a way, end up with the thing they most want and the thing they most fear at the same time. Mm. She's a character who's been very afraid of aggressive men. Um, and she ends up to her horror with a man who shouts at her. Um, and he's a man who claims above all to want freedom. And he's achieved freedom. You know, he, he works and has his own flat and is living his life. And after this illness, he moves in this rather chaotic woman to live with him, um, claiming he wants to look after her, which is mm -hmm. incompatible with claiming to want freedom. Or yeah, and it? also curious given that she does quite a lo lot of looking after of him because he's the one who's ill, though he is the one who reproaches her for being mm -hmm. in need of his care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of something we sort of talked about when we met before meeting here, uh, talking about the, the sort of ambivalence about relationships. That seems exactly what sort of that kind of distance, that kind of fear and the thing that you fear most that you end up having. Like, that seemed to be the thing that's... Definitely, would that seem to be right? 
Well, that can be a good thing. You could end up, you know, designing your own hero's journey. That doesn't sound too silly. You know, this is this could this could make things better for both of them in the end, perhaps. Um, but it's it's a hair raiser while it while it's while it's going on, and some mm. of their some of their clashes are. I've, I remember reading about Richard Yates when he wrote Revolutionary Road. He realized something wasn't working in the in the manuscript. I haven't been able to trace this, so I hope it's just not a, um, a canard. But um, he, he he realized the way to make it work was to have no one in it listen to a thing another person said ever. So quite conscientiously, he went through all the dialogue, and they, no one re quite responds to what the other person says. And I think. That's a terrific, not to let you behind the scenes too much, but it's a terrific trick in writing dialogue if you just have the people respond to something that the other person hasn't said um, over and over again. So I put, a, I put quite a lot of that in. I quite enjoyed that because it, it just lifts the, you know, it lifts the stress levels while you're reading it. Um, and yeah, I think couples can develop blind spots which are the precise silhouette and outline of the person they're living with, mm. unfortunately. But also that question of blind spots in the book is so interesting because I feel that sort of content-wise but also structurally and narratively you're doing something very interesting with the question of the extent to which we can ever know ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's lots of interesting moments where you, you get the sense of certainly Neve and possibly also other characters in the book being kind of really buffeted by events and there's just a couple of quotes I want to read. So when she's talking about um, an earlier time when she was living um, in a friend's flat, she says, I didn't know how I'd ever afford to move. I didn't think about it. That was my scheme. Or else I think I just hoped something would happen. And then a sort of few lines later, there's a message on her phone. And she says, this was the something. And it's a sort of ex-lover turning up out of the blue after a few years. And when they meet up, after this kind of long absence, they meet up at a, a gig that he's doing, he's a musician, and afterwards he says, he suggests they listen to the next band, and Neve says, oh, okay, I said, what, and not talk. And then the, the narrator says to us, that was off-putting, wasn't it? Why so jealous, so grasping immediately? It frightens me to remember this. And there are lots and lots of moments like this in the book where it seems clear that, on the one hand, Neve has a lot of self-knowledge about her lack of self-knowledge. So there's, there's an insight about how uninsightful or undirected or unkind of aware she is about the decisions she makes, who she ends up with, where she ends up living, and so on. But then there's also the question of whether, in fact, that kind of self-knowledge is at all useful. Mm -hmm. Because for me, one of the quite haunting things about the book is the, the sort of mirror relationship between her and her mother. Mm -hmm. So her, the mother is a really fascinating character in the book, very kind of um, unsteady and sort of um, slightly kind of unreadable, um, erratic and very impulsive. And Neve kind of watches her with exasperation, making these kind of terrible decisions and then kind of having moments of insight and then kind of skittering away from the insight in a kind of fearful way. And I found it quite a sort of painful feeling watching her look at her mother and potentially see her own, you know, the mm. echo in her own behavior of her own sort of um, impulsive decision making. And so it raised the question for me of, 
A, whether that was something you were sort of, you know, try, trying to make us think about, which I think probably you were, but I'd like to hear a bit more about that. But also the question of, you know, if that's a kind of structuring theme in a novel written in the first person, what does that mean in terms of how you structure the novel, how you write the novel itself, when you're dealing with questions of kind of opacity or kind of blankness or, you know, a block that, that a character can have in terms of any insight? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, okay, I'll get. I'll go. I'll go through. I'll go through. Yes, in terms of, of Neve being immediately grasping, I remember watching um, a, a film that Jermaine Greer made when she was quite a young woman. Um, I think even at university, and it looks it looks like a sort of German expressionist film. It looks like she's crawled straight from the cabinet of Dr. Cal, Cal, Caligari. She's got black and white makeup on, hag hair, and it's all in black and white. And she's crawling after some man, saying, "Love me, love me, love me." <laughs> you know, going through a fence, climbing over a wall, love me, love me, love me. And I think that's, that's, that's Neve. <laughs> or that's, you know, that's how Neve has been in the past until she's hit these buffers. Um, and she is aware of that. And what does she do about it? Well, I'm not sure. Um, uh, well, I, I think happily she's met someone who's, not, who's, who's sort of pointing that out to her, perhaps. Um, and, yeah, I think and the, the, a lot of horror of... Um, what about Neve putting things out to herself, though? Because that's what she's doing in that quote. She's like, oh, God, why am I like this? Which is mm -hmm. the thought we have all the time, right? <laughs> thinking and living and, you know, failing to. Absolutely, yep. Um, it doesn't, knowing isn't enough, though, is it? I mean, no. to, to sort of turn that, turn that sort of battleship around is quite, um, the, the, you know, the gears will grind. She yeah. try and do that. So, yeah, and I think I... Think I it, the mother in the book, she, she's, I think, that's possibly not just me, but it, you want to valorize your mothers. You want to see what they did as um, brave and, um, I don't know, if, you know, if they, if they left violent men, for instance, you might think, good for them. But if they left that violent man to go on to another violent man, it's more, it's trickier to deal with. And I think, I think there's a lot of horror in Neve for both of her parents who are neither of them, um, they're suboptimal parents, suboptimal parents. And the mother is very skittish and is another one who's just, who's on the love me, love me, love me tip while refusing to admit it to, to herself, to anyone else. And um, this comes to, well, where are we up to? Oh yeah, yeah, I think it's it, it, it's interesting to write, to, to write a, a first-person narrator who, you know, her resources, her writer's voice. Again, as I haven't pivoted from writing books about writers and her resources, her writer's voice, which is very well developed and sharp, as you'd say, and that's what she's got. But what use is it to her? It, I mean, it's some use. I think by the end of the book, it's some use, which... Um, it seems to me she's a really good reader as well. And one of the things I think that links both of your work is obviously Catherine's book, Mastered, had all these quotes in it from other writers. And um, there have been two other books called First Love, um, one by Samuel Beckett, a short novella, and then um, the very famous short story by Turgenev. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about those books and whether they've had any influence on you and this one, because we talked about Revolution Road and Jermaine Greer crawling up. I imagine her sort of here now, weirdly, crawling yes. up and down the main aisle. I don't know if anyone else is thinking that. She yeah. <laughs> She's trying to get out the door. No. <laughs> um, and I wondered if those things were things that 
speak to you. Well, I could lie. Um, I'd, re I'd read both, both of them and enjoyed them, and I thought that's a good title. And it's not, it's not like Grey Grain writing a book, of, a book called A la Recherche de Tom Perdue. It is still slightly up for grabs to call, <laughs> call something first love. Because it's sort of, it's colloquial as well, you know, like who's your first love, when's your exactly. first love? People, yeah. I mean, that's how the Turgenev story begins. If mm -hmm. you don't know it, it's like a kind of, they're all, are they drunk? It's a, it's, dinner the it's, a, it's a party and they've all left except three three chaps and one chap says so what we're all going to do now is tell each other the story of our first yeah. love from which two of them immediately demur one of them says oh my first love was my nurse my second was my wife it's not interesting yeah. and the, the other chap says oh get again it's not interesting and the third chap has this rather um, cruel story of well yeah a story of here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, his, 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 his first love was, was interesting. Um, I know I love that story. I can't claim it was an influence, really. Can I? I, th I like that the last line of it is something like, you know, I prayed for... In the story, the, the, the woman he falls in love with, it turns out, is having an affair with his father, and he finds this out and is um, deeply w wounded. And the last line is something like, I prayed for her and I prayed for my father and for myself. So, but, but the question, I think, oh. about the, like the sort of the frame of the story in relation to Turgenev is mm. interesting because, so in that, you have the kind of act of telling the story of a first love and how these first loves have begun. And one of the things that's very striking about your book is that we never hear about how Neve and Edwin come about as a couple. We hear mm -hmm. a little bit about the beginning when she's visiting him and then moving in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, without giving anything much away, that there's no... I, I didn't feel it was clear where that relationship was going mm -hmm. at the end. Um, so I wonder if that was, was that a kind of decision that you took or? Definitely. I think, I, yeah, I didn't want to show how they met because the whole, the whole mystery is how on earth do we end up with the people that we do? <laughs> so to show them sort of catching each other's eye, mm. how on earth is it that we manage to, you know, something about us will attract us about a person across a room or in conversation and it will turn out they're the perfect fit for all of our, you know, <laughs> neuroses and to, you know, really like mess with us. And yet we spot it. So I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to put that in because mm. it was too hard. No. Mm. <laughs> um, Sorry. I'd, every time I laugh, that happens. I'm I don't to laugh. I'd, I'd already had sort of had a sort of meet cute 
with with another chap that she has a thing with. So I couldn't. I thought, well, I can't have another. I can't write that again. <laughs> and then it it fitted. I thought, oh well, that's good because I don't I don't want to show how these two people ended up together. That's the whole mm. mystery. That's the whole yeah, and mystery. that's the thing that they're battling out in their arguments. <laughs> We just, we just can't be too emphatic. Anytime okay. we say anything emphatic, bad things happen. Um, but then I was struck as well by the first line of Beckett's first love, which is, I associate rightly or wrongly my marriage with the death of my father, mm. which yep. that was, that was is a, a bit sort of, of pertinent. quite poignant. Yep. Well, yeah, and that's in Tegenia as well. You've got this, this trio of, yeah, it's never not the parents when it's about the lover or never not yeah. the lover when it's about the parents or something. Mm -hmm. Freudian so Freud was right, yeah, exactly. Basically. Um, yeah, her, her, her father dies a, a little way into the book, and this unleashes a sort of um, mad energy, I suppose. Mm. And, and as you said, Edwin is not wrong when he accuses her of seeing her father everywhere. But um, yeah, even if it's really horrible about pointing the way he points that out. Mm -hmm. But either the bit I liked in um, in uh, in in Beckett's first love, um, the narrator, a, a prostitute called Lulu, keeps coming and sitting on his bench with him and won't go away, and they end up together, and that's his first love. And, and he, but he wants rid of her, and he, he says he wants her to come less often, less often to the point of no more. Um, and I think, in a way, that's what Edwin is saying to Neve all the way through. He's, but that, go away, I want you to be more absent all of the time, he says. So that was, that was in there. And it, that, can I yeah, 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 yeah. It also made me, that, speaking of first loves, perhaps the first ever love, there's an excellent Mark Twain book called The Diary of Adam and Eve, where, you know, Adam, no, it starts with Eve saying, oh, he seems really shy, but yeah, I'm following, around and following him around and helping him, and I'm sure he'll, he'll thaw out soon. And then it's Adam's diary, and he says, this creature with the long hair is a good deal in the way. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I think Adam wants Eve to go away. <laughs> I just wanted to link that thought though to the form because like obviously in Beckett he's always stripping stripping things away and um, your book is short mm -hmm. and very elegant and very like beautifully put together and obviously you've played with form like kind of brief fragmentary forms and I wondered if that we talked a lot about the themes and the characters but whether there's something <coughs> to say about the form of these shorter things and what no <laughs> well it's I don't know that I could I could lie or post rationalize, but that's that's not how I write. You just kind of it's a it's a proteus that you hold on to till it finds its right shape. Yeah, and that you know, and I know when it's right, and it, it came right in the, in that kind of I can't. So was that lots of cutting or just yeah, cutting, moving around, and then making sure they don't reply to each other. Yeah, that. Yep, conscientiously making sure no one ever pays attention to a thing another person is trying to communicate to them ever. Um, yeah, but I was really struck by the dialogue in it. There's lot. There's long sections of dialogue, um, often arguments between them, and it struck me that, um, especially in Edwin's case, when he has these kind of rants, where you know, as we've said, there's there's something importantly true about what he's pointing out to Neve about her own tendency to imagine him to be the cruel father, even if he also is acting like a cruel father. Um, but that there's something really disturbingly insistent about the way he does that. And in, the, and in these long passages of dialogue, I, I felt that you really got the sense of the kind of the dangers of storytelling. So the, the danger of somebody who repeats a narrative. And I, I sort of 
I felt that part of what you were doing was kind of, there's a kind of warning in the book about the psychotic potential of speech and of, and of narrative, that when somebody is convinced by something and has to repeatedly you know, push it out into an argument with a partner and, and you know, without listening to what the partner is saying in return, just carries on pushing that line. I feel that there, that's where the kind of link between you know, true madness and, and narrative happens. So in those moments, I've, I felt sort of kind of alarmed and delighted by, <laughs> by this horrifying spectacle you were, you were showing us. And I think that's importantly linked to the fact that it's a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. That Neve isn't doing that telling. She's she's showing us from this kind of slightly dispassionate stance these crazy arguments that happen. Well, I'm. You say? Did you say elated? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I I, get, I do get quite in in real life. I I can't handle an argument. Even if I'm in a shop and I hear someone disputing something, it makes me feel so frightened. I have to leave. But in books, I love it, and um, uh, yeah, I feel very exhilarated by it somehow. Mm. I love Philip Roth's book, My Life as a Man, which has some of the most appalling arguments in it. One of them, when he's you know, with his wife, he, he's, he's threatening to kill her and he says, I'll step in your brains, Maureen. <laughs> I remember just cackling. I'm going to save that one up. Cackling over that book. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, and I, 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 I loved writing those scenes. Even, but even the, the mother character is just her sheer unyielding, banal self-involvement. Mm. I loved, I loved writing that as well. Yeah, I don't know why it gave me a thrill. Just the sheer, you know, wall, unyielding wall, yeah. absolute wall of fire in Edwin's case, and in her case, just wall of bad poetry. The bad poetry that she writes and <laughs> insists on, on reciting. <laughs> Should we see if anyone wants to ask a question? Is there any? Are there any questions out there? Um, thanks. It's been really, really interesting. So thank you all very much. Um, <clears throat> one thing I would say is that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, is um, despite all of the intellectual games that are played in the game, it's also an incredibly funny book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered whether that was intentional or whether, and maybe it's just my sense of humour, but I, there are certain things that How Edwin... How can you find it funny? So <laughs> <laughs> but certain things that Edwin says, particularly that you've already read, where he says, um, oh, I'm, uh, you know, you're making, you're making me um, the possibility that I might be upset or, or whatever. That is actually quite funny mm-hmm. as a male reader, recognising oneself in those particular things. But in terms of the kind of the valve that humour plays. Is, is that important in your work, or would you say that for, for this particular book that humour was something that was ne- necessary to, to deflect from some of the more awful things that go on? Um, uh, I, 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 can't, I don't think I could ever admit to trying to be funny, but as I was writing it, I thought, this is so ghastly, it is funny. And I, maybe this is something that, you know... Edwin would have a go at Neve for for being, you know, finding everything funny. There's there's very little that I don't find funny, unfortunately. But there are things that I don't find funny. Cruelty, I don't find, you know, but the, some of the ghastliness of these arguments and the things that Edwin comes out with, I did. I don't know. I I, I have to find a grim humour in them. So, yeah. In terms of, yeah, I'd say so. But thank you, Hugh. It was funny. I, 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 I'd hate to admit to trying to make something funny, but I hope it is funny in parts. 
Well, maybe that's another connection with Beckett. Like this absurd. Uh, people always say he's so grim, but he's so he's so funny and like exactly that kind of slightly missing things and like um, that linguistic play and arguments and um, yeah. That seems like a good. Is there another question? There's a couple in the back. Hi, Gwen. Um, I've read a couple of other, and enjoyed a couple of your other books, but not this one yet. Um, and you say they're all in the first person. I'm just wondering, is it the same character through all the books? And, and if not, how has your voice changed in, in this one? Um, I'd love to pretend they were all distinct characters. They're not, it's an, can I say it's an iterative process? So they're all, they're all, they're at different phases of their life, I would say. So that's the development. They're all, uh, I'm, I'm writing another book now where it, it's in the third person, but I've got to keep her as a writer because I couldn't imagine not being one. So I don't know how not, I've got, I mean, I've got, I don't know. Um, how has it changed? I suppose that if I, I can't, the only, the only book of mine that I've looked at recently, my old book was, Thick Notes, the second one, because um, one of my husband's friends had kindly bought it, and I, I thought, oh, is she going to read that? I've got to have a look at it, and I, look, I, was so, I thought it was so awful. So, <laughs> that one, but I think the first one was probably just a bit more romantic, I suppose. I think they've got nastier. I've been getting, I think they've got, or whatever the, whatever the problem was with me, it's, got, it's getting, got to be a more urgent problem. And in, I think actually I've solved it here finally, whatever that means. But I think, yeah, so probably just a bit, the agitation has probably increased a little bit over the, over the books, but I don't, I can't pretend they're all really dis distinct voices, but an evolving voice, how's that? <laughs> Can I kind of build on that? Can I abuse my position here um, and build on that? Because I was, I was struck by um, something Alex Clark said in this very nice and praiseful review that she wrote. She described this one as an impossible little wonder of a book almost plotless, vertiginously careless with its time frame, which made me think about the sort of expectations that, you know, sometimes we might bring to novels and that you may have kind of flouted if, if those are expectations. And that in relation to the fact that some of the reviews of your book have kind of dwelt on the question of whether these books are autobiographical or not, which isn't something that I'm interested in exploring, but I'm interesting, interested in hearing from you what it is that you feel that you're doing, you know, given that, given that all writing, of course, is wresting something out of a mixture of, you know, experience and fantasy and nightmare and fear and desire and all those things. Yep, and given it. those kind of, you know, questions of like, what does, what, is a, what does a novel look like? What does a confessional writing look like? How, how do you feel, what do you feel you're doing in your writing? Well, first, as that was a nice review, but vertiginously careless when I think of the time that I put in with my editor and the copy editor working out exactly which winter and which... Anyway. Um, <laughs> otherwise, it, I mean, it's, again, I could, I could make something up, but it wouldn't, I, all I can say is I've, 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 I've read all my life and I've, want, I've written since I was a teenager and I've wanted to express something and I hope I've calibrated my mind to... That's the main thing it is doing and wants to do for a long time now. Um, and it comes out how it comes out, and I know when it's right, but I don't think to myself I'll subvert mm -hmm. these expectations. Mm -hmm. That would make for a, a, not a book I'd want to read, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So it just comes out in the, you know, it dictates whatever form it's going to assume. And I don't know, it's strange. You can just suddenly feel when it clicks. It's sort of got a nice 
ring to, you know, ring, it's vibrating in, a, in the right way when it's when the form is right. Um, yep. So there's another question down there. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I laughed a lot also, but it was very funny in general. Um, but there was, a, there was a moment where she's talking about what her father did. Mm-hmm. And then Edwin says, like, did she write it down? Like, does she have a journal? Mm-hmm. And that just, and I, I, I'm surprised by how sympathetic you are to Edwin, and which actually just makes him more interesting. But I was wondering when you wrote that line in the process, like, where that came, like, near the beginning or later on. Yeah, no, it was, it was more or less written in order, this book, and that, that is a horrible line. But it seemed right, and here's why, because Edwin is ill, and when he hears of someone who's died of the exact same thing that he had, his sympathy immediately goes there, 100%. And he thinks this is a wronged man, and, you know, Neve, who's now here being nasty to me, was nasty to him, and now he's dead of the exact thing. I experienced this heart attack, which puts, you know, has, um, this is how my father died too, um, incidentally. And I looked it up at the time. And one of the, one of the, one of the things that happens to you when you have this myocardial infarction is you will feel incredible fear and anxiety, such as you've never known. This is if you survive it, obviously, you incredible fear and anxiety, such as you've never known. So it was natural for Edwin, when he hears that her father has had this, his sympathy goes there, and whatever this man did was under, was understandable and fine in that moment. Anyway, so I know it's I know it's like a eyebrow it's scorching nastiness. There's one here. Thanks. Um, you asked Gwendolyn a question about structure, which I'm I'm not sure she answered, or maybe she didn't want to answer. But I dodged it. Give away. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, do you remember the question? It was about how in, in a book like this, for people sort of missing each other mm. and the opacity, you know, how do you, I thought that was, that was an interesting question. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> giving away tricks of the trade. You're being put under pressure now. Well, I, I don't even repeat myself. I just, I would just, yeah, I, I put it, I put it there di- in the in the in the dialogue and i mean in sort of just a yeah i don't i don't know that i could expand upon it too much but just that not having them never quite respond to what the other ones there's a bit later on where edwin is sort of saying to neve oh you're always going on about your self-respect we don't hear her mention that at all so you're wondering where he's got this image of the woman who's filled with the idea of self-respect and why is that so offensive to him um and yeah, and then at the, the fight, you know, this argument churns on through the book. Um, and at the end, Edwin is making a plea to Neve. He says, I'm, you know, I'm a human being. Please, can, you know, I'm nothing to you, but can you just try and see me? And that's how the argument ends in the book, is him finally trying to get her to, you know, just give the, give the sort of camera a bang on the side so that it can see him as a human being instead of this, this um, you know, shadow projection maybe this big beast that's come to frighten her lately and I think if that can if that can work out then that's a happy ending but I think that's tenuous tenuous but I, I would say it's probably a slightly unfair question to Gwendolyn Lance. I was thinking of it more as a critic I was thinking of um, one of the theories I have about women's writing it might not be right I still don't really know is that they're interested in the beginnings of genres the edges of genres things that are sort of slightly between and I think we talked a lot about gaps things that Gwendolyn's left out the beginning of their love relationship and I wonder if that might be something that's 
gaps and elegant restraint and cutting things back and uh, you know there's there's a actually I wanted to have Gwendolyn read it actually and one of my favorite my favorite passage from the book comes towards the end where she um, this is suddenly a bit from her journal arrives in italics you didn't even really know entirely that she was doing this and it's a, an incredibly beautiful passage and it was written in a slightly different register and I was just interested in how in the novella form, like what she's, what Gwendolyn's pulled back and like what, what gaps that might produce and what sort of, and I'm wondering if it was gendered, whether women like to write in a way that leaves open certain possibilities, perhaps. It's a very like sketchy and like unfinished theory, but that was the notion. Um, will you read that bit for us? Okay. And then yeah. we'll take a couple more questions and then we, well, we can drink again. After Edwin and I were married, I tried to plot a new path. I cleared out the storeroom a bit, put the club chair back in the living room. I bought a small desk, which I have against the wall, under the skylight. In a new notebook, I wrote down his line, it's freedom that counts. Did I believe it? It didn't seem to be what I'd aimed for. The opposite, rather, an illusion of freedom. Snap-twist getaways with no plans, nothing real. I'd given my freedom away, time and again, as if I had contempt for it? Or was it hopelessness I felt that I was so negligent? Or did it hardly matter, in fact, if I could just dissolve myself, as I always had, in time, in art, when I felt loss or lack? I learned about that when I was little. The other world, that's what I had to guard, wasn't it? I wrote down things like, untangle yourself, stop saying you love him, you're wearing a groove in your mind, say it when you mean it, Save money, small steps. Save money every month. Remember you're a grown woman now. Be more proud and more relaxed. Don't feel persecuted by your stupid students. Don't think about them. Don't let your mind get colonized. Get on with your work. Don't pet him. Don't act like a baby. Don't be a cat. Be decent to him and to yourself. Respect yourself and him. See your friends. Don't be sly. Don't be deceitful. Don't snoop. Don't ask him questions for the sake of it. It's lonely making to sit and listen when he's said it before, when he won't let you in. Keep your footing. Leave the room if he calls you a name. If you save money, you can leave the flat if he's nasty. Stand up for yourself, but don't waste your energy. This is your time and your energy. Don't try and manage him. Be natural. Let him be natural. That's what love is. No more cramped feelings on either side. How did these small steps fare? Strangely keeping myself to myself more. Sometimes it felt like we'd done it, sometimes not. Sometimes he whimpered in pain and I was Mrs. Puskins again. And what was wrong with that? It felt soothing. Coming home from work, standing on the landing, he'd open his mouth and lift his arms for a hug and we'd hold each other and I'd feel safe and happy with someone I could love in a natural way. Catherine, you asked a question, and if I'm remembering it properly, it had the word blankness in it. And as I remember it, it was, um, you know, how do you create a narrator that has a certain blankness to her, or maybe an, an awareness of what she is unaware of? Um, and I guess my question is, am I interpreting that question correctly? And then... Um, C could you say a bit about what it is to create a narrator like that, or if it just somehow happens naturally? 
I get, it does some, it does happen naturally, but then you sort of fix it on the second go through. I think yeah, she has a she has a blankness to her. She in that passage she says, from when she was very little, the other world. That's what she cared about. The other world is the the other life is the is the creative life and an alternative life to you know, not the world that she was living in, which will lead to a certain blankness and will lead to a certain coldness, which might be something that other people around her are are um, responding to. So there's the uneasy mixture between that and between the, you know, crawling around saying, love me, love me. Um, and, um, yeah, the, 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 just a certain helplessness that she acknowledges. And I think possibly all the characters in the book feel one way or another, both their parents, Edwin and Neve. It makes me think of um, Larkin's poem, Myxomatosis, What Trap Is This? Where were its teeth concealed? They're in a trap. The trap is who they are. The trap is the situations they get into, and it, it's hard to know what to do. Do they just, you know, stay still and wait, or do they try and take action? And I think we, we watch Neve try and take action, and we watch Edwin try and take action, um, and we hope it works out. I suppose. Yep. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>